from McGuire Woods, welcome to Yield Maintenance, a debt finance podcast for market participants outside the traditional bank lending space. Whether you're a direct lender, an alternative lender, in fintech, or a borrower, we invite you to come inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the debt finance industry. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Yield Maintenance, a debt finance podcast produced by McGuire Woods. This is Brian Coughlin, your host for the podcast, and I am joined today by two partners, David McLean, who is a private equity partner in our Dallas office, and Anne Croteau, a private equity partner in our Raleigh office. We're excited to have both of them on to discuss the ins and outs of mezzanine financing and how that particular segment of the market has been affected by the recent changes due to COVID and potential opportunities in the future. Hi, David. Hi, Ann. Hey there. Hi. How are you doing? Uh, Good. Glad to have both of you on the podcast today. We have some pretty interesting topics to discuss, and we're going to dive into the intricacies of the MEZ and secondly market, which is an area where Non-bank lenders have had a significant opportunity to expand because banks are typically unwilling to to go into that particular market. So kind of interested to hear about your experiences in that market and what you're seeing, what you're seeing particularly in the last couple of months as the markets have generally been pretty disrupted overall. So David, at a 10,000 foot view, do you think you could provide kind of a general description of what a MES facility or a second lien facility looks like and when a borrower might look to utilize a MES or a second lien facility as opposed to a traditional kind of senior secured single bank or syndicated structure? Sure. Happy to. And, you know, in some respects, you know, while this has been evolving and changing over the years, in some respects, it's been a really, really slow evolution. And you can go back, you know, 10, 12, 15 years, whenever I really first started doing this and, and you know, would run into Anne at each of our prior lives or prior shops and we're doing this work. It, you know, it, you know, hasn't changed that much, you know, for years, you know, there was a, and there still is today a, a large, you know, conference in New York every year on the state of the mezzanine market. Now, I think it's the state of the the, you know, mezzanine and unitronch market, but the group would do a market survey every year, and it seemed that you could literally just take the, the prior year survey on terms and, and structures, and it didn't change very much from a pricing and structural and and identity standpoint as what those deals look like. That is, you know, sort of the, the typical 12% cash pay interest, 2% pick was just sort of the market for the longest time. That's where the, I think the biggest evolution has been on pressure on that pricing. But just a, a general description of the of the MES market. I mean, I remember when I, I started doing this work about 15 years ago, went to a firm that you know we'd heard had a heavy MES practice. And honestly, at that point, I didn't even really know what that meant. You know, it truly means it truly means what it sounds. It's a level of finance in between the you know the true debt and the equity. So think of it as you know, a junior security that sits beneath the senior debt facility, often utilized because the senior lender's appetite or credit profile only allows them to go up to a certain leverage ratio with the company, most typically, a, you know, a three times if a bank is mandated. So usually that, that mezzanine facility is coming in to provide extra capital to a company, you know, oftentimes for a leverage buyout. And it sits you know, above the equity in that capital stack and beneath the senior debt. 
mezzanine, you know, we think of it more as a as a product as well as a structure. In that, with institutional mezzanine lenders, there are very well defined constructs. We, you know, we I never refer to them as as market terms when negotiating because they're so ingrained and settled in this product that they're really constructs of what a mezzanine facility looks like with an institutional mezzanine lender. Limited duration payment blocks as opposed to permanent payment blocks for non-payment default. That's a very critical distinction from deep subordinated, quote-unquote, seller debt or seller paper. Limited remedy standstill periods as opposed to a permanent remedy standstill period on taking unsecured creditor action. Very well-established provisions that govern in a bankruptcy vis-a-vis the senior lender. And a few other sort of critical sacrosanct terms that give that mezzanine lender sort of clarity on what the relative rights between the two lenders, the senior lender and themselves, if in a downside scenario and in much different world than the than the junior lender, you know, the seller paper, or in the venture context with you know subordinate convertible subordinated debt that might be provided by by the the equity investors, where it's more of a you know it's called debt, but really looks more like equity. Second lien facility. Again, I, you know, and I think you're going to hit this with another question, and Ann can get more into this. But when you talk about second lien, it depends on if you're talking about structure or a product. From a structural standpoint, you know, again, this is probably one of the evolutions I, you know, I've seen and we've seen in the in the mes market in the last ten years. You know, when I first started doing this, you know, 2005 timeframe, almost every deal that I worked on was an unsecured mezzanine facility. You know, no security interest in the underlying borrower's asset. You know, maybe a pledge of of key man life insurance, maybe a stock pledge. That sort of evolved over time to now almost every deal that I work on is a secured mezzanine transaction. And and from my perspective, I think some of that came about as you know there started to be a proliferation of second lien deals and term B. You know, you know, sort of quote unquote term B facilities. You know, around that, you know, started to pop up around that same time. And I think the mezzanine market kind of glommed onto that secure notion, oftentimes as a quote-unquote silent second, which could have many different characteristics in that realm. From a structural standpoint, it really a second lien facility in a, in a secured facility is the same thing with respect to its own paper. It is, it is a junior debt facility that has – it is a debt facility that is secured by the company's asset, junior and lien priority to the senior lender. From a product standpoint, you know, very different. That second lien market is only subordinated by lien. There's no, whether they get paid second in a waterfall, there is no sort of notion of a payment subordination or a blockage concept where the senior lender can shut off payments to that second lien lender. It's merely a, a lien subordination concept. In the MES space, you know, the characteristic of having a security interest on the paper doesn't really change that dynamic that you would have with an unsecured deal, which is, you know, senior default payment. You know, there's going to be a permanent block until until that payment default secured. Non-payment, you know, financial covenant, you know, a limited duration payment block. So a lot of words there, but that's, that's a brief peek at the sexy world of, uh, of mezzanine finance. Yeah, no, I, I think that you joke, but mezzanine finance is actually, I feel like it is a bit of an opaque area of the market until you really start to dive into it. Yeah, the, the market terms are, they do seem like they, there's a general consensus 
a little bit, but they do vary pretty significantly by the actual MES lender that's involved, particularly if they're going to take a strip of equity because that does kind of change the profile. So, Anne, David mentioned the difference between a MES lender and a second lien lender. Do you find that you come across institutions that operate both as MES lenders and as second lien lenders? Or is that a pretty distinct market? And we, we see a MES lender operating in one area, a secondly lender operating in another area, and those really acting as very different products, even though they may the terms may be thrown around as, as if they're analogous. That's right. They are thrown around in the lower middle market often as if they're analogous, but at the most precise, they're totally different and totally different products. I think the reason they're thrown around in the lower middle market as analogous is based on, you know, what David said, that MES lenders, the traditional mezzanine lending really started in real estate and then moved into the corporate, you know, debt market and initiated really as unsecured financing, initially offered by life insurance companies. And that is the true mezzanine product or financing is really unsecured debt. In the lower middle market, a lot of med lenders over the past decade or more have moved to taking that second lien. As David said, that second lien really probably isn't fully collateralized or even, you know, much collateralized collateralized at all in certain circumstances. And a lot of the reason the MES lenders started taking it was really to get protection in a bankruptcy proceeding above the unsecured and the trade creditors. And that's the primary reason why they, they do hold that lien. It does also give them some ability to take secured lender remedies, which actually can be important in certain restructurings. There are times that the first lien lender doesn't actually want to take the remedies, particularly if it's a small revolving lender out in front of the MES. I've done transactions and restructurings where there is a sizable revolver and first lien term loan, but the the bank, often a bank, the first lien lender may not be, but often the bank doesn't want the risk of taking the secured lender remedies and has authorized the MES lender to actually take those remedies um, themselves, which is typically understanding that under the terms of any intercreditor, the first lien lender is going to be repaid first. And there would be, as David mentioned, some sort of standstill, often about 180 days on a second on a MES facility. And they would require the consent of the first lien lender typically to take the kind of remedies. But we've we've done that from a from a junior position, taken over a company, taken over the board and and continued to operate it and sell it to pay off the, the first lien debt. So that's a little glimpse on True MES, second lien tends to be further up the market. It's not typically in the true second lien. It's not in the lower parts of the middle market. It, it does not come with typically payment subordination to the first lien lender, as David indicated. And it's generally reserved for companies that have a sufficient EBITDA generation enterprise value that the first lien lender feels comfortable not requiring payment subordination. There are times that, and, and so the products tend to be generally offered by different lenders, especially, you know, when you're talking about MES, unsecured or secured, but, you know, typically as we would see in the lower middle market now, secured MES, being offered typically by smaller debt funds, lots of SBICs, small business investment companies in that world providing that product. 
And second lien lenders tend to be still often a private entity, but funds of much greater size that would be offering the second lien product. And Brian, probably the biggest difference in the two products and the way to really, really identify what it is beyond the, the payment subordination notion is pricing. The second lien is going to be priced, you know, again, given its slightly less risk profile differently than that than that MES product pricing. And that largely yeah. relates to the, the area of the market in which they are actually financing. So absolutely, the more you move up market, typically the lower the pricing goes. Because also when you're moving up market as a second lien in a second lien product, you're also starting to bump up sometimes against the high yield bond market. And of course, yeah. that's going to be far preferable to the, to the borrowers in terms of having far more flexibility. Yeah, I was about to mention that if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you're you're playing in a in a private equity world or a financing world, you know that's middle market up market. You know you probably haven't even seen. You know I have colleagues, law school colleagues that, in New York that, that do nothing but high yield debt offerings, and they really don't even know what a subordinated debt, you know, a mes transaction looks like. They've never even come across it. They're they're sitting much larger in the capital stack. We're that high yield cutoff, you really start to see it, at least from a facility size standpoint. When you start talking about $7,500 million MES facilities and start getting up there in, in size. Yeah, I mean, the, the pricing and the pricing involved in MES would make it, well, it, may, it would make it very expensive if you started to get into a very large facility. So, yeah, if there's another alternative that's cheaper, I think everybody, everybody likes the cheaper alternative, especially when it comes to financing. So I wanted to switch gears just a little bit to a more personal topic for both of you, because both of you are a little bit unique in that you are both, I would describe as robust M&A corporate lawyers, but you also practice in the debt space representing MES lenders, which in all honesty is extremely unique. So how did you end up both having a traditional M&A practice and a debt finance practice, which are two hats that most lawyers don't wear? The way it happened for me was I started out an M&A lawyer, a complete M&A lawyer, practicing in Chicago and then New York, running largely uh, strategic non-private equity buyouts and strategic acquisitions initially, often between public companies, merger, public company mergers, did that for about three years, moved to New York. And at that point, I did start doing some private equity buyouts, but from the M&A side, and my extent of understanding any portion of the debt finance was who in the debt finance group I needed to call to make sure the financing was going to be ready when I was ready to close my M&A deal. (laughs) So I did that for about six, seven years. And then when I burned out New York, moved to Raleigh, which is obviously where you move after leaving New York. And at that point, moved to a a smaller shop here where I was still doing M&A but was required to do more all around the all around the axle. And this this firm had a mezzanine practice. And so I just started I started learning debt finance. And I it was an interesting switch to me. In part, you know, the M and A documents are all past looking, reps and warranties about what everyone did in the past and it, it kind of speaking as of a static time about what the buyer's gonna get going forward. Whereas with debt financing documents, they really they do have that rep and more that representation warranty portion, 
but they're really far more forward-looking documents about the covenants, affirmative and negative, that the borrower is going to have to abide by to make the lender happy and feel secure. So I actually thought it was fascinating in that regard. And I really, what I liked about the MES market and, and debt financing as compared to M&A initially was the fact that you're brokering this relationship going forward. In M&A, sure, you could have some transition period. And of course, with a private equity buyout, often you have the, the selling shareholders roll over and stay in some sort of operational role. So there is a little bit more of that relationship continuing on. But compared to the bigger M&A that I was doing, the more strategic, it was, you know, you're, you're doing a snapshot in time, everyone parts ways, and you hope you don't see each other again, because that means you have indemnity claims. Whereas it was kind of fun negotiating with folks that were going to have to live, eat, and breathe together for a while. And I did find that understanding the debt financing and also equity financing that go with a leveraged buyout, in addition to the M&A, I think makes me a better lawyer personally, being able to see everything all around the circle and understand how some issue in the debt financing could actually implicate the M&A. So that's kind of my spiel. Yeah, I, I would say that the Chicago to New York to Raleigh route is a very typical route for most lawyers. So. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit odd, but we liked the barbecue here. So. <laughs> Fair enough. David, what about you? How did you end up doing both, both that and M&A? Yeah, so it was fascinating listening to Ann because you know, I, again, I, Ann and I did deals opposite each other at our prior firms and, and always had great respect for Ann because she was honestly the only other lawyer I ever came across that had that similar joint expertise and background in doing working on both the, the M&A side and the debt side. And I never really knew how, how she came about that as, as well. Very similar. And she talked about the distinction and sort of on the debt deals and the go-forward relationships. I'll turn back to that because that, that's been a key to my practice and how I got into this. But, I, you know, I started in New York at a big firm at Crevasse, Wayne Moore, and their model is to, to rotate within, you know, practice groups every 12 months or so, so that in theory, you make partner seven years and, you know, you've given up 20 years of your life. You look much older, but you're an expert in, in seven different things. You've done nothing but high-yield debt offerings for 12 months. You've done nothing but M&A deals for 12 months. You've done nothing but IPOs for 12 months. So I went through a couple of rotations and always and, and had it in my early DNA to, to sort of try to be a, a jack-of-all-trades and learn multiple things. So I did everything from M&A to public offering work to you know, a lot of structured finance, aircraft leasing, muni work, collateralized deals like the, the DreamWorks facility when that was put together. So I had a background in doing more than just one niche. When I moved to Dallas, really kind of settled on being an M&A lawyer and moved to a firm, and I can say it because really they're not in existence now, Patton Boggs back in 03 and was hired with, with a group of three lawyers who were left at, from the, the Dallas Brobeck, Flager, and Harrison office. And a lot of lawyers, people don't know that name now, but it was the high-flying tech firm during the dot-com bubble. It was, you know, the 1A to, or the 1B to Wilson Sonsini and Cooley and Gunderson and some of these other firms. And so we were doing a lot of venture capital. So joined Pat and Boggs with a, a small team, really with one other, I think we were seventh-year associates at the time, who ended up being one of the partners who founded McGuire Woods Dallas, along with me and a few others, Akash Sethi. 
And we joined to build out the private equity group for, for Pat and Box. They were a, a practice that was doing a lot of, you know, it was a debt finance shop and a lot of junior capital, a lot of mezzanine finance. A lot of their clients at the time, the partner that ran that group was really forward-looking. He saw the evolution of the market coming. He saw a lot of his clients starting to move up and down the, the capital stack, taking more control positions, a lot more significant equity co-investment. Warrants were sort of phasing out, but they really didn't have anybody at the shop who had expertise in negotiating those minority equity rights, whether it was direct equity or a warrant or even you know control deals, which some of their clients were doing. And so we came out to build that M&A group, but initially coming over, there was not enough work for 2,000 hours for each of me and a cost. And this mezzanine practice was thriving. It was sort of described as a distant cousin to venture capital, which is really, really true, right? A lot of the same, you know, all the equity docs were on the same template. It was just a matter of, of kind of learning the, the debt piece and, and understanding the covenants. And the beauty of the mezzanine work is, you know, you're largely working off of the senior documents. So it was a good, good way to really learn that product without completely being thrown into the fire. It was, it was, put, on a, you know, was put on a deal for Norwest Mezzanine Partners, which is still a client today. And kind of learned my, my biggest lesson, you know, from the very first phone call, learned my biggest lesson into being, a, I think, a, a strong lawyer in the space, which was they were financing a, a buyout for GTCR out of Chicago. That's my second story. They were financing a buyout for Sentinel Partners out of New York. It was one of their first ones, very, very important strategic relationship with them, sponsor relationship, and was told, listen, you know, our relationship with them is critical. You know, we have to, you know, advocate strongly for our position, but you know, make no mistake about it, you know, you know, the other side is, is our client. And so I really learned that very on that when you're representing a mezzanine lender, the borrower is your client's client. And playing nice in the sandbox or having a collegial attitude and a cooperative attitude, however you want to describe it, it's critical. And so close that first deal. And whenever they went back, uh, when Sentinel was doing their next buyout and Norwest was selected, they asked that I work on that transaction. And, you know, then transaction three happened and that you know, sort of was, it became part of the team. Similar thing happened with the American Capital Strategies Chicago office, which is now the, the Marinon team out of Chicago. They were financing their first GTCR buyout that I you know, kind of jumped to. Again, a big win for them and critical because the goal wasn't to do one GTCR deal and hammer the hell out of them on the, you know, the documents. It was to, to be a good partner and do, you know, a dozen transactions. Same thing happened, closed the deal, great experience. When they won a mandate to do GTCR's next deal, GTCR specifically asked that I work on the, the deal for them. That's how I became a mezzanine lawyer and, and two clients turned into four and four turned into eight. Fortunate that, that the senior partner at Patent Box Dallas, you know, and a couple of partners there were comfortable with me sort of getting involved in those relationships. And then, you know, as typically happens, somebody left American Capital strategies that went into a, a large hedge fund that had a senior strategy that was starting out on their uh, direct e-liquid credit group and morphed and became doing more, you know, first lien senior work for a private debt fund and then that group. So that's how I became a debt lawyer. And I just never stopped doing the M&A work and the private equity work. So over time, my practice became, you know, fit, you know, I was always like the kid, I'm up and down the capital stack. I started doing everything from representing you know, early stage equity investors, growth, you know, venture capital, growth equity investors, control buyout funds. And then I added in the practice representing first mezzanine, junior capital lawyers, whether it was unsecured mess, secured, second lien, pick whole co-structures, you know, started doing the senior work and then picked up, you know, started doing venture, yeah, venture lending, which was, you know, 
the, the sister to venture capital, but on the debt side. So to this day, really you know, do it all. Some years it's 80-20 one way, some years it's 80-20 the other. You know, in an ideal world, it's 50-50. What I learned is by having that diversification, your value tends to continue through the, the downtimes, and you can always tend to find ways to keep yourself busy, which plays out well during a time period like we've been going through with the last three, four, five months as the, you know, largely, you know, with some exceptions in some pockets of people, that buyout world is kind of ground to a halt for any certainly, certainly any kind of new deals. Hope, you know, it looks like it's starting to thaw now, but just, you know, handling the debt work and primarily the, you know, the portfolio company work for the, you know, the hundred plus loans we've closed over the last four or five years, you know, threw off a, a, a stream of work that keeps you, uh, keeps you employed and keeps you, uh, you know, keeps you as a, as a value-add attorney. So it's whether by luck, dumb luck, or blind luck, it worked out well for me. And, and to this day, I, you know, kind of see myself as a up and down the capital stack, private equity and finance attorney. Yeah, I would claim that that is definitely design and not luck, but um, that's a pretty fascinating path to get from where you started to, to where you are today. And I, I think it's actually a pretty good transition because you mentioned that the acquisition market has really slowed significantly. And I think anybody who does M&A work, even from the financing side, has known that there's just, there is some M&A activity, but it's significantly slower than it was going back to February. And while we'd like to see it starting to thaw, it seems like it's a little start and stop at this point. So, Anne, what do you think the current state of the MES market is, especially considering that it is so tied to the acquisition market and LB. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so what are second or what are MES lenders doing? Are they deploying capital? Are they sitting on capital? Are they finding other ways to try to deploy capital? Or what have they been doing while the M&A market has slowed? Well, I have not seen as much capital deployment in the last several months because, as you know, they are largely financing M&A buyouts. And the other thing that the MES market will also do, in addition, I, I think uh, the majority supports leveraged buyouts. However, there are a number of MES lenders who are providing growth capital to companies that are not changing hands. And that growth capital is usually some hybrid of, you know, MES and equity, often, often some sort of a warrant, although those are harder and harder to come by these days in the MES world. They're often having to pay for their equity or at least some portion of their equity. And so some of the term sheets that I am seeing more of relate more to the, the growth capital that an ongoing business requires in, in a lower middle market. And I am still seeing some of those floated did actually close a transaction that originated, post, originated post-COVID and closed about two weeks ago. And it was that growth financing. It certainly it's pricier right now, and part of the reason even the growth capital is not moving forward significantly is because people are looking to make sure that the companies are stable. So basically, there are a handful of you know industries that are I think still considered to be kind of good bets at this point that have not been as impacted by COVID. Clearly, it's quieter. The other thing, and this gets into the the next question, I believe. So I don't want to go too far down this path. But often when a company is in trouble, everyone looks around at the uh, mezzling lender to the mez lender to solve the problem, to solve the liquidity problem. Because the, the discussion usually starts out with, you know, the equity sponsor or 
the CEO of the company asking the first lien lender, hey, can we get some more room on that revolver or can we do a small term loan or maybe a CapEx line, something which ideally the sponsor would want the first lien lender to provide it at, at that pricing, which is going to be far more favorable. And if the company is in trouble and liquidity with liquidity issues, occasionally the first lien lender will throw a little bit of you know, cash their way or a little bit of flexibility. But for the, if it's a big stub that's needed, usually the first lien lender says, no, nah, not my problem. I'm not going to, I don't feel appropriately collateralized right now based on how the, the, the company is performing. Why don't you put in equity? And then the sponsor says, oh, no, I don't want to actually put in equity because I, my equity is, if you're not even appropriately collateralized, my equity is totally underwater. <laughs> I don't want to do that. And sooner or later, everyone's fingers start pointing to the mezzanine lender <laughs> who has a decision to make at that point about, you know, what is the status of the company? If they step up and provide this liquidity, are they throwing good money after bad? And more often than not, the mez lender often does put in some slug of liquidity to help move the company forward and protect its investment. Often, you know, if they're willing to do that, they might at that point get a kicker or some sort of, you know, some sort of equity kind of upside for the risk, the additional risk that they're taking on now to step into that void and provide that liquidity. And that I do see some of that ongoing now. I see those discussions ongoing. I'm looking through a restructuring right now where the mezzanine lender is going to be providing, you know, uh, several million dollars of significantly needed liquidity. But there is not as much happening, even in the restructuring, in the liquidity kind of plug world, because of the government loans that have been provided. So right now, the companies, a lot of companies are able to function off of, you know, the government loans that they've received or are going to be receiving. And I think the real question is going to come with what happens when that money runs out. And if a company has not recovered and is not performing appropriately, I think you're going to see a lot of finger pointing at the meds. Yeah. And um, as that stimulus funding starts to run out, I mean, I think it's pretty, it's an open question at this point whether or not there's going to be more stimulus. And that really kind of feeds right into the next question. So the, the government sponsors stimulus programs, the Paycheck Protection Program and the Main Street Lending Program don't allow non-bank lenders with very rare exceptions with respect to the Paycheck Protection Program to participate as lenders in those programs. And they, they will not be allowed to participate as lenders to the extent that they're not banks in the Main Street Lending Program. David, how has that limitation affected MES lenders, given that they just they don't have the ability to provide these loans because they're just not part of the program? And how has it affected their existing portfolio of investments? Sure. On the first part of the question, I, I don't think it's affected them much just because of the nature of these programs and the pricing is just something that these private, you know, wasn't going to generate the, the necessary IRR to satisfy their investors anyway. I and mean, I think largely these loans have, have been sort of a, a fee game, sort of twofold, a fee game for the banks. They've A tremendous amount of fees have been generated over it. And it's also been a lifeline to right to to customers of the of the banks where they probably otherwise have senior debt exposure to as Ann said, kick the can down the curb and keep some of these companies from going into significant distress and or you know or bankruptcy. Again, we're talking the lower middle market. We're not, you know, you can open up the Wall Street Journal and see every day some sort of BK filing for something that's tied to the uh, to the retail industry. 
So I think the bigger impact has been the second part of it, which is on, well, I, I think the, the, the impact has been more, again, to what Ann said, and it says some of the stimulus capital has come into these companies. It's put off a bit the need for perhaps these you know, these borrowers to, to do something. You know, I think as, as that money where it runs out and is spent, the nature of these companies in the lower middle market is, is these, these aren't, you know, these are typically 10 to 100 million enterprise businesses. They're, you know, one to 10 million in EBITDA, one to 15 million in EBITDA. These, these companies aren't sitting on huge amounts of cash. They don't have, you know, you know, inordinately large senior debt facilities and revolvers they can draw on. If the, you know, in a lot of respect, what's happened in the last six months is the growth trajectory of these businesses has been thrown off the rails. The ultimate exit of these companies is to grow to a point and then exit. And I think in order to get back on that trajectory and that path, looking to take largely non-dilutive capital to do so is going to be very attractive. So I think it's delayed in somewhat the deployment of capital from these private you know, junior debt funds, but I think it's going to accelerate and, and quote unquote be caught up, if you will, over the next 18 months. Starting to see it thaw. You know, when you when you reached out to me a week or two ago about this, and, and I mentioned that you know for the state of the market, I'm just going to you know play an an audio file of crickets chirping because I didn't have any news <laughs> going on. I've had two pop up since then, but you know from quote you know mes funds, but they're but neither deal is a quote unquote mes deal. They're both they're both senior. One you know is allowing a little tiny little working you know line of credit on top of it, but they're in effect you know first lien deals both of these transactions. So I think that speaks to one of the characteristics of, of these, you know, mezzanine funds or junior capital funds is they really have flexibility to play up and down the capital stack to deploy everything from, you know, preferred equity, common equity, common equity, preferred equity, pit cold co, unsecured mez, secured mez, first lien, you know, synthetic unitrons. You know, the 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 players that are most successful have the ability to be flexible in, in their mandates and how they deploy capital to, to bring returns to their investors. You know, I think the impact that, that's, that's, that's occurred, and I think, again, Dan's point, you know, where a large part of the capital is deployed for financing leverage buyout, you know, I think that we'll see, you know, I think what we're going to see more in the next 18 months is perhaps a, a move towards just, you know, growth financing, growth, you know, growth mess to get back on that track. You know, maybe owners do take a, a dividend recap to bring some liquidity to themselves because they were used to pulling out distributions from the business that have dried up. So I think that the MES funds are perfectly situated to to step in and, and fill that void. And again, you know, Dan's point, you know, the, the, I think the, the strong businesses are going to, you know, are, you know, right now people are seeing which, what, what those businesses are. And those ones that are self-identifying as, as strong and sound are going to come out of the strong and sound. And you know, the, the capital is going to be there to, you know, to finance them. You know, these funds, whether it's buyout funds, growth equity funds, or debt funds, are not sending money back to their LPs. This vintage is, that, that we're seeing is, you know, the, the capital is going to get deployed. It's just going to be compressed into a shorter period of time. And, you know, whenever that switch gets flipped on, and again, we're seeing a little bit of a thaw of it now. And I think you, you'll see that very, very active. Yeah, the last piece is a lot of what the mezzanine funds, particularly the SBIC funds, have been doing the last two, three, four years is financing the independent sponsors and their buyout activity, which has been, you know, one area where we've been, you know, fortunate to kind of, you know, be at the forefront of, while certainly that space has slowed down as well, and this, you know, will probably shake out some of the stronger independent sponsors from others, 
I would say our network of independent sponsors, while I, I think the number of deals close to LOI or what's floating around is, is much slower, they're all really out there actively looking for those stronger opportunities. I think that you know they were able to more quickly flip the switch to looking for acquisition targets than their committed blind pool equity fund competitors have been. In other words, when this hit, right, every private equity fund and every debt fund in the country spent the first 60 days just putting out portfolio company fires and making, you know, plugging holes and dams and making sure their portfolios weren't just going up in flames. And that took, you know, one, two, three, four months. And it's only it's only been in the last four, six weeks, I think, that that kind of under control, you know, forbearance is put in place, restructuring is put in place, and the groups can really kind of start focusing on new activity. The independent sponsors really never really had to deal with that too much, at least the new ones. Or if they did, maybe they had one or two portfolio companies as opposed to, you know, 5, 10, 15. So I think you'll see those groups emerge with new deals a little quicker as a result. I think they had a head start in, in looking at deals. And those deals fit very favorably with the those private debt funds, the junior capital funds. And again, accelerated by the fact that a lot of the banks that would be taking a piece of that for the same reason maybe aren't able to go out and deploy capital because they have issues with their portfolio companies, you know, that run into, you know, have more regulatory pressure than the private debt funds do. But I do think where you're also going to see, it's almost like on a barbell approach, not only are you seeing, you know, the, the companies that are performing well during this pandemic being, you know, potential targets, but folks are starting to look most particularly some of these private equity funds, the funded, funded capital funds, they like David said, they were mostly putting out fires, but now they're starting to look at the potential distress targets, particularly as tuck-in or add-on acquisitions to an existing platform because there's a potential good buy out there. And if people are start seeing the market and the companies stabilize to some extent, they're having a little bit more confidence to start putting out LOIs to basically snap up what they seem to see to be a good bargain. And a lot of that is going to be financed by the mezzanine lender already in that cap structure because the bank is not necessarily going to be willing to fund it depending or, or fund much. They may open up a little bit of their financing, but there's going to be a real need for the, the mez to supply, I think, a vast majority of that pricing. And as David mentioned, what we're seeing in terms of the growth capital coming out of the MES market right now, it is often in the form of a first lien or kind of unitranche financing, but it, it's priced like MES. It looks and quacks like MES. It happens to be only behind a small revolver secured only on you know, current assets. was the sole source, uh, source of, of debt capital to, to a company. And so you can tell that Obviously, people are going to have people are having to pay a lot for the the debt financing they're getting right now, and it'll be unclear when the banks, apart from the government stimulus programs, really feel comfortable putting more liquidity and more capital out there. For I think for a period of time, you're going to see the MES market really be the supplier of that capital. Yeah, and related to that, do you think and I mean, David mentioned that you see or he sees MES capital being provided in a number of different potential products. So traditional MES, pick hold co-notes, 
more traditional growth financing or almost venture debt sort of products. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's going to be pressure on kind of traditional MES lenders from either their investor investors or LPs to move into different product lines or to push capital out back into the market kind of earlier than everybody has anticipated? Or do you think that that's going to be kind of a natural evolution of the product that there are going to be opportunities available for kind of the traditional non-bank lenders to really seize market share while the banks sit on the sideline. I think you are going to see a decent amount of that happening, and that was consistent with coming out of the 2008-2009 recession. Was I think it was 2009, we saw very little bank lending going on, and the MES market was really, you know, the mezzanine lenders were kind of running the show, and that started to turn in 2010, but there was a period of a good 12 even 18 months, you know, declining over that period where the, the, the bulk of the financings in the low middle market was, was coming as, as MES or with MES pricing. And so I, I, I do think you'll see uh, that same, you are seeing that same phenomenon happening here. I think you'll continue to see that. I don't know how much it's coming from the investors and LPs pushing the actual fund to, to be out there. I haven't heard or seen as much of that apart from the principals of the MES fund want to be out there and want to be pushing this money forward. They do have a lot of these MES funds, especially, you know, the SBICs, they may be sizable funds. You know, they, they may be raising somewhere between 35, 50, 70 million of their own capital that can be matched up to two or three times by the government, depending on, on the registration. But they're not billion-dollar funds. They're not $500 million funds. And so they have a little bit more ability to sit on the sidelines if they don't feel that the deals are out there to be had and they're not good. But I think the, the I, everyone that I talk to is, is absolutely looking under rocks at this point because it's an opportunity for them to be out there and providing needed liquidity where they're in a pole position and they're not secondary to the banks right now. Yeah, the banks sitting on the sideline is it's a huge opportunity, and I think that that's consistent with what we saw in 2009, that the bank, the bank pullback really created an amazing opportunity for non-bank lenders. And I think that over the past 10 years, the bank lenders, in some sense, haven't given up that the ground that they lost back in 2009. So I realize at this point, everything is speculative, but if you wanted to take a moment and speculate as to what you think the MES market looks like in a post-COVID world. David, do you think that we're going to see a return to what the market looked like in February of this year, or have there been fundamental changes that are going to change the market in either a better or a worse way for MES lenders once things go back to normal, whenever that is? I think it's probably too soon to say, although my hunch is you won't see fundamental changes. I think things will tend to you know, level set close to where they were, largely because I, I don't think, I think the dynamics in the middle market remained and the fundamentals remained unchanged, meaning largely driven by, demographically driven by by aging baby, baby boomer sellers who really don't have a succession plan. I don't think anything has changed the dynamic or decreased the supply of companies coming up for, you know, sell or, or refinancing. If anything, I think it's probably, you know, increased that supply or demand, depending on your perspective on it. And on the capital side, again, I, I don't think any, any, any capital is going to be returned to LPs. You know, the banks will eventually, 
you know, the banks will eventually become, you know, get back to a level of activity. And I, I just don't think it's going to fundamentally change, you know, kind of what we were seeing before. You know, it might might feel a little relief on pricing pressure in the in the short term. And, and as Ann said, I think you'll see, continue to see at least, you know, you know, maybe see in the next year or so similar pricing to what you were seeing, but with but with more senior like structures. So, you know, less, you know, less risk, but, you know, continue the pricing. So pricing the risk in through the through the company, not through the actual legal structure. And what about you? Do you think that there's any fundamental changes that we'll see in a post-COVID world? Yeah, I concur with exactly what David said, that you will see a little bit more of a, you know, senior structure that you, will, you won't be seeing a lot of unsecured meds, that's for sure. You're going to see, you know, totally leaned up meds that I think often is in a largely first lean position. It has significant controls. I do think the market is going to move on in a creditor term slightly. We might see those are pretty standardized at this point. But I think that in the last two years prior to COVID, I'd seen additional pressure on some of the fairly established mezzanine secured kind of second lean terms. I think that pressure is going to be released a little bit. To give you an example, Sometimes I would see first lien lenders and sponsors who were really driving the market. Borrowers were able to negotiate tremendously favorable borrower terms over the past several years prior to COVID. And there would be pressure on the standstills, moving it from the traditional 180 to 270s or bifurcating the type of lender remedies that they could take at various times. So I think that pressure you're going to see come off to the extent they're not in a fully senior position in the cap structure they're going to have a little bit more flexibility on their second lien and their security package. But no, I don't, I don't think the market is largely going to move in terms of what the product really looks like apart from, apart from the pricing. And potentially also, I, I think you may see some equity kickers come back into play where they're, they're, they've been very few and far between. Yeah, it will be. It's going to be fascinating to see how how things shake out. So we're about to wrap up. I just wanted to give both of you a chance. Do either of you have you know last words of wisdom or some genius advice for somebody who's interested in the med space or any particular interesting nugget that we didn't get to over the earlier conversation? David, I'll, I'll let you go first. You know, it, I think it kind of comes full circle. You know, Ann mentioned that you know you don't. Yeah, I don't think we've seen any unsecured meds. I, I think those. And this is a, this could be the whole other podcast, but you're, you're truly going to, if you're investing in the mezzanine finance right now, you have to realize that you're the fulcrum security. And I think unless you have a, an appetite or, or a willingness to step in and, and take control of a, of, a, of a borrower on a downside, which, you know, that's the, the, that's the, the, the nature of the, of the second lien position the mez is holding. Um, and I think there's why there's there's you know there's, there's it's both a, a great value opportunity and it, and it poses potential structural risk if, if you if you have the DNA of your fund in order to do that you know those those might be some of your your greatest returns in the fund and the deals that you know wind up having to be restructured and you you know convert that mezzanine fulcrum position to an equity position if you don't have the DNA or the ability to do that and play a sponsor role. Then I think you need to be very careful for the you know that the deals you're financing in that it's it's both a long-term viable business and is as importantly that, that the sponsor whether it's a, a committed fund or an independent sponsor and, and their capital partners have both the dry powder 
and the, the skin invested and the intestinal fortitude to continue backing that investment because otherwise you could be in a little bit of a, of, of a quandary. Yeah. yeah and I, what about you? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I didn't know that I'd necessarily had any words of, wisdom, of particular wisdom so far, so I'm glad that you've marketed <laughs> as if there have been. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of parting words, you know, I think taking off from what David just said, I think one of the things that meds funds are going to have to really consider hard over the next year is not only whether to addition, you know, fund additional liquidity, whether it's a worthwhile continued investment as opposed to throwing good money after bad, but there are going to be lots of opportunities for, you know, that to be a very good follow-on funding and for them to, like I said, you know, potentially get some equity. To David's point, in terms of potentially having to, you know, outside of a bankruptcy restructure, convert some debt to equity to get it right-sized a little bit more for the balance sheet, at least temporarily, which could then also provide further upside as the company does rehabilitate and, you know, later may get sold. The men's lender often steps into the shoes of, you know, to the extent there's not a strong sponsor in place, really kind of starting to take on that sponsor role, certainly if they're going to convert a significant amount of debt to equity or otherwise take more significant control of the company, that's a typical kind of MES restructuring playbook. You know, I will fund this liquidity. I will, I will roll some of my and convert some of my debt to equity, but then I need to really be at the reins of this company to monitor my investment. And that works, and I've seen that work, work very successfully, but it's, all, it's a very long-term play, typically. And you've got to be careful picking and choosing how many companies you make that play on, because then you get into, I think, what people will talk about is the 80-20 rule, that 20% of my portfolio takes up 80% of my time. It can be an opportunity cost sometimes. So I think that, that's, the only, that's the parting word of wisdom that I would say, is that being able to have that flexibility to make different capital investments to alter your investment and to be able to get more control over your investment is all a very big positive for these funds, but they're going to have to pick and choose. Yeah, that's, I think that's great insight for both of you. Thank you both for, for joining and for the conversation today. That was a really fascinating dive into the MES market and what we've seen so far and what we might start to see in the future. So thank you, David. Thank you, Anne. And um, I'll leave you to the rest of your day. You bet. That's fine. All right. Thanks, All right, guys. Have a good weekend. Appreciate it. Bye. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Yield Maintenance. If you have a question you would like to ask us or a topic you would like to have covered on a future podcast, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.